Welcome to the Opera Biz Podcast, uncut and unfiltered, where we hang out with opera professionals and talk about life inside the industry. I'm your host, Daniel Welch. Taking the time, especially right after rehearsal. And <laughs> it was a long one, too. Doing this. Yeah. <laughs> what time did you start? To, you 10 said 30. 10? 10.30. 10.30? Yeah. Lord. Yeah, that's a long time to be standing. And, <laughs> and do, are you... Um, are you still doing just? Are you just doing music rehearsals right now? Are you still Tomorrow's our piano dress rehearsal. Piano dress. And we have orchestra stage on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then the dress. And then the dress. Then we're done. And then how how many shows in the run? Eight. 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 Okay. Yes. Let me make sure that you are. Am I on and running? Yes, we're good. I always have to double check. Just it never hurts. So I give you the list of question yes. stuff, and and I figured that way you've got a little bit a little bit of prep. Yeah. Um, but I always ask people about their path to where they are now just because if there's one thing I've learned, it's that every artist pivots a bit along the way. You know, as a young artist, we have our eye on, like I said, we want to be here in mm -hmm. the long run, like that's a long-term goal. And the road to get there isn't always a straight path. It's mm -hmm. often a very winding path. Mm -hmm. So what, what led you to conducting specifically? Um, was that something that was an early passion for you, or did you kind of discover it along the way? Conducting was definitely an early passion. Um, I started with piano when I was four, mm -hmm. and then violin when I was eight. And already then, kind of my violin teacher, who, who taught orchestras in the public schools. And I had orchestra every day, well, twice a week as a kid, I think, and then every day while I was in junior high and high school for one hour or one hour and a half, whatever. Yeah. Um, and then I added choir onto that. I was the choir pianist. And already at that time, I mean, I could sight read and, and I read all the clefs and whatnot. And so I was this weirdo little kid who, this teacher who got me when he was 59 years old and I was eight and towered over me. And he saw, if I don't, if I don't help this kid along, they're going to kill her. They're going to bully her. So he put a drumstick in my hand and said, here, beat time, because I was correcting other young students and they would give me dirty looks he was like I have to save her from herself <laughs> so th because we had such a good uh, theater department in the high school I wound up playing in the pit I played piano I dragged my mother in to play flute for one show and then I conducted a show also like one one or two performances and so they these public school teachers who who I owe so much mm -hmm. um, really invested me at an early age but I kind of I can't remember what bit the bug I, I'm tempted to say that it, it must have been Bernstein on TV, but I was already watching the Met broadcast when I was 10 or 11, my mother looking at me saying, who is this kid? <laughs> and I wanted to, you know, the, when the Met had its 100th anniversary, they had like eight hours of broadcasting from Central Park and whatnot, and I watched the whole thing. And, wow. And so I was a little bit weird that way, and I was kind of, um, I went through high school and college really with blinders kind of on. I mean, in terms of pivoting, um, pivoting was that there was there was no venue for me to study conducting really at, at the undergraduate level. I also started very early. I, I went to college at 17. Okay. And um, there was no undergraduate degree in conducting, so I had to get a piano degree, mm -hmm. which wasn't which didn't really make me happy. Yeah. Because I was never ever going to be a pianist. So dragging myself through two, a senior and a junior recital was for me, you know, living torture on earth. Yeah. But. By the grace of my teacher, we kind of got me through it all. Um, and I was a massive sight reader at the time, so quite early I uh, was coaching singers and sight reading anything anyone put in front of me. I went to Brevard Music Center as a teenager mm -hmm. um, and got the opera bug there because they, they put on six operas that, you know, those summers that I right. was there, and I would sight read for people and play rehearsals, and I was the little trained monkey. And it just went from there, and then it was so obvious to me that I was going to conduct. And yeah. I'm not sure it was obvious to everyone else, but I made it obvious after a while. Nice. That, that sight reading is, I, I started out, I, I taught myself to play piano from seven to eight. Mm. And the only thing my parents ever made me do when I was young was take piano lessons. Mm. So I ended up starting my undergrad as a piano major. Mm. And the one thing I never had was the sight reading chops. Sight mm. reading, I was always terrible I didn't at. have the memory, the memory chip. Oh, really? I had the sight reading chip and not the memory chip. I could yeah. memorize really fast, but if you put a new piece in front of me, I, I did all I did everything I could do to not play it in front of anybody until I had it like down. I think someone someone should do a survey of a kind of like how many 
people or what the statistic is for who can memorize, who can sight read, and who can improvise, mm -hmm. and what the crossover is in that. Because I discuss with like everyone I know because it's so fascinating. Because yeah. I hear, oh God, I can't sight read that, and I'm like, oh God, I can't memorize that. <laughs> and so, and, you know, and the jazzers are like, I don't even read music, or right. you know, and, and and those of us stuck to the page, I can't improvise two notes. Right. You know? So it's it's definitely. I think a comfort factor, and I wonder how much of it is just natural talent. Yeah. I think a certain amount of improvisation can probably be learned and trained. Yes. If you have side, kind of the, what did I, what did I read somewhere? If you have the courage to like just make mistakes all the time. Mm -hmm. I played jazz. I, I gigged as a jazz pianist for a while, and what I loved about it, I, I do a lot by ear, and I can mm -hmm. improv a lot, mm -hmm. and that was always very innate. But still, there are set things that you learn to improvise on. Exactly. So there's riffs that you learn. It's like, it was like doing scales as a classical pianist. Yeah, that's what I've heard in my my advanced age yet. <laughs> now that, that that's what happens. But it was it was a mystery to me. And I always thought something was missing, but I realized there's like room for every kind of, kind of musician. I admire them that can do it. I'm definitely an interpreter. Mm -hmm. Like for me to create, like even a composition or to, like you said, you played by ear. I never, I never played along with the radio. I never, you know, I never improvised on a tune. I never orchestrated melodies I heard or anything like that. I'm a definite interpreter. Mm -hmm. When I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, I'd go to the public library and always go check out the, the opera um, piano scores yeah. and play through them. And my mother would always say, you have to practice your own stuff. And I said, but this is my stuff. <laughs> it's my stuff. And um, it very clearly became Definitely your it was stuff. definitely my stuff, and when I when I went to Indiana University when I was seventeen, um, all the piano majors had to sing in chorus, and I'm like, uh, this girl's not singing. I always wanted to, and then they kept sticking me behind a keyboard in high school, and then it kind of just left me. The courage to do it left me, and singing was never that much of a passion. But yeah. I wanted to be on the stage and not in the pit, and you know, not backstage or whatever. But it left. So then I got to IU, and I said, um, I'm not singing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they looked at me, you know, like seven people sitting in this room of intimidation, and they said, well, every pianist has to sing, so we're going to make you do this little voice. I said, I'm not, but I'll cut a deal with you. I will sit here and play the next hour of auditions, and then I want to oh. play for one of the choruses. And they thought, this little cheeky kid. So I sat down, and I played the next hour of auditions. And that's where I could mimic, because a lot of stuff came through that I couldn't, you know, I couldn't have known. Right. So I just sight read, and I can't remember if someone nudged me along or whatever, but I sight read, and then the rest of the time I was the, the piano slave <laughs> and loved it. Yeah. I mean, that's a, it's a distinct skill set, and I think a very distinct calling to be able to work with that variety of musicianship, um, different instruments, voices, and I mean, you're that bass layer. You're that, as, as a collaborative pianist, you are the support system. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something I didn't realize until I started accompanying other people and then realized that how I had worked with pianists and the perspective that I had viewed them in was completely wrong. Hmm. And it it was no it was a mental overhaul. Um, yeah, absolutely. When I when I went to IU, they had not yet inaugurated the collaborative piano program. Yeah. That would have been perfect for me. Yeah. But there we go. That's 100 years in the past. And they've moved on. Now they do that, and that's good for all the people that are coming behind you. That's, that's exactly. great. So what did you do? What were your further degrees after the bachelor's? At the a master's in conducting. Okay. And where did you do the also master's? At also at IU. I went away for a while and then came back and did it, and then started a doctorate, but regretfully didn't finish it. Although, mm. I mean, I got jobs, so I didn't regret. I mean, I'd love to be like Dr. K right now. but Right. <laughs> So you went to you went to Germany, right? After IU, I first I landed in Vienna. In Vienna, Austria. okay, that's right, Austria. And then in two thousand three, I went to Germany. Yeah. What was the process getting over to Europe? How did you? It was just, it was a personal connection, right? Isn't everything? I mean, yes, that's what I try and tell people. <laughs> like networking is it. If the people well, that you know, I was a pretty good networker, but the business wasn't so kind to me for a long time. Um, and then through a series of serendipitous events left, right turns, spirals downwards and back upwards and threatening to quit. Um, Simone Young brought me over to assist her and her okay. manager saw me conduct literally in the, like I just got off the plane and she said, go up there and do this orchestra rehearsal and I conducted for 10 minutes and uh, he saw me 
and I handed him a videotape and I said, after this job, I'm quitting because I'm not getting work and I'm done, like I want to live a life. And I mean, preceding these, that moment where like two or three years of, of hardcore temping in New York and, mm -hmm. and accompanying and this and that and the other. I worked in Met Titles for, for right, I think yeah. three years and um, nothing was moving. I couldn't get an assistantship, so I was very frustrated with the, the, the scene here. Mm -hmm. And so I said, well, I'm gonna go to Europe if I can in, in any way. And, um, and so she brought me over and then not four months later, he really made a poker play and upped the ante and um, threw me into the pit in Vienna. Nice. As, you know, basically, I did have some rehearsal. I had two orchestra rehearsals, I think, with the stage of Don Giovanni in, in German. And so, uh, yeah, and then I got the job as Kapellmeister after basically three years of unemployment and thinking yeah. I was going to quit. So it, it can turn on a dime. Yeah. And I've said since then, I mean, the universe really knows when you're at your wit's end. You know, mm -hmm. like if you're like, well, I might quit or I'll do this. But when you're really at the moment where you say, I'm going to quit after this because I'm so done. Yeah. And you resonate with whatever might be guiding us out there. Then it usually happens. Yeah. Catches you a little by surprise. and It did. And off I went. Yeah. So, Giovanni, how many, how many operas have you conducted? Oh, gosh. Have, I you, have you kept tally? I don't know. It's something like 65. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. And do you have a... Do you have a preference between symphonic or um, opera conducting? I don't. They're, they're different animals. Mm -hmm. I am in the extremely lucky position of pr dividing my time almost equally between the two. So there's, there are a lot of people who come through the symphonic area and, and wish to be in the opera, but it's hard to break into the opera world. Mm -hmm. It is if you haven't sort of done the background in piano and getting to know the singers and, and, and spending a lot of time in that realm. It, it, it is possible. I don't discourage anyone that has the love for it. The, the route might be a little more circuitous and, and longer. Yeah. But, um, and the other way is much easier. If you're in any opera house in Germany or Austria, even France to a certain extent, the opera house orchestra is also doing a series of concerts. So if you're a Kapellmeister, assistant conductor somewhere, chances are you'll get to conduct some concerts. And oh, okay. I was lucky enough to, to get in um, after my two years in Vienna. I went freelance. And then um, the year after that, I got a music directorship. So I automatically had you know four concerts a year. And then you start guesting and whatnot. And so I do divide my time equally. And both have their challenges and pluses and minuses. What are some of the, the significant differences between conducting the two? I mean, besides, obviously, the singers. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I find the symphonic decidedly more challenging. It's a much more intense period of rehearsal. Like, you put it together in three days. Or mm. if you're in London, you put it together in three rehearsals, and, wow. and that's it. And so um, it ups the ante quite a bit. And it's nice for your private life because you're like five days in one place and you go home. Yeah. And of course, opera, you're there sometimes for, you know, like I am now, nine, nine to ten weeks. Yeah. And um, I think in opera, you're definitely a servant to the story and the stage and the, the needs to fly this immense plane. Mm. and try to land everyone safely and and really it's really team effort with symphonic it's also a team effort but for me there's a lot more letting go and seeing what happens in the performances after you've rehearsed like once you've had a dress rehearsal in a symphonic concert then how can you up the ante because mm -hmm. it's very very intense you do up the ante in the opera world also, but it's just a different flavor. Like it's like maybe one person is not feeling so good who's in a major role. Then you take your tempo down a little bit, you take it up, you, you cut something, whatever. There's so much negotiation to be done. In symphonic, it's very interesting to try to see, okay, can we, can we go the extra mile tonight and can we put some tempo on this? Can I take this curve differently? Can I hold this fermata longer? Um, and create something more in the moment. And mm. in the opera, I think because of the staging and because if you have dancers or whatnot, you have more of a set formula that you adhere to. Right. Um, and I, I get more nervous for a symphonic than I do for opera. Really? Yeah. Oddly enough. I, I mean, think I, it would be the I, other way with how many moving pieces there no. are. No. But I also, you know, like you said, there's so much more rehearsal prep for opera. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, I do, you know, speaking of singers, I mean, you do symphonic things with singers as well. True. But it's different. You're really, you're not at the, you're not the servant to the drama. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it is. And when mm -hmm. you put a theatrical element into it, it's already a different ballgame. Yeah. I can see with symphonic work how there would be something that doesn't involve a singer. You can, you build so much of that based on how you feel about the piece and exactly. what you want to do then and there. Exactly. Do you have a favorite symphonic piece that you've conducted or favorite opera that you one of each do you have something that just I don't I don't have a favorite top? actually I mean there are things that I like conducting and things that I kind of steer away from and I'm in the blessed position that I can actually say no to things now yeah <laughs> like I've graduated from that that decade of having to say yes to everything just to get the next gig right um, and so now I, I see that I do make certain choices or I've said mm, you know I think someone else could probably be a better ambassador for that composer than I am. What do you try and steer yourself towards? I mean, you've you've conducted I'm conducting the epic <laughs> range of, you yeah. know, the all of the opera canon, and then you know. Yeah, huge I mean, of I steer clear of Bruckner. Okay. It's not he's not someone who's who's drawn me in really, and not someone who um, I would actively go buy a ticket to. This is probably some you know gross deficiency in my <laughs> musicality, <laughs> but you know, here I am doing Philip Glass, and for others, that's like. A torture chamber. Right, so yeah. I think there's room for everyone to have their likes and dislikes. I'm not a big fan of Madame Butterfly, but I've I've conducted it quite a bit. Mm -hmm. um, for, more for storyline than anything else. You know, anything yeah. that leaves me feeling kind of empty and and yes. angry at the end of the night in a really, I guess, female kind of way. Maybe that's what it is. You know. Yeah. Um, I don't know. So favorites. It's changed over the years. Like I steered clear of Mozart for quite a while. And then being in Vienna, I found this love and ability to do it. And Beethoven had been my love up until then. And just until like two years ago, I steered clear of Beethoven. Mm -hmm. And now I'm doing more of that. Um, I have done a lot of Wagner. I love it. Um, and I can do it well, but my passion doesn't burn as much for it as I thought it would. Yeah in my 20s when I was listening to all this stuff. And now I'm like, oh, that's a long opera. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I can do it. And you know, Strauss, I love. I love anything contemporary. Well, anything is, you know, that's too definite. There are some things I don't like. Right. But I love, I love dealing with, with live living composers, someone I can call up and say, hey, can we change that? Yeah. Um, or wouldn't you rather try it this way? And um, so contemporary opera I've done quite a bit of and world premieres of symphonic things as well. So mm -hmm. I feel like I'm so blessed to just have this completely balanced kind of kind of career that's developed. Yeah. I mean, I'm kind of I'm kind of the I wouldn't say the underdog, but I'm like, I don't know, a well kept secret, I guess. I've kind of been I've been just doing my thing being pretty present on the scene in Europe, but not so much here mm -hmm. at home. And now that's hopefully starting to change because I like working here and I love being at home. Um, but I've had a European-based career. And that school over there is, is a little bit slower. Like okay. you have time to make mistakes. You have time to experiment. Um, you're supported by the society um, who's, who's really into you know seeing something different every day. And so and they allow you to make mistakes. and. And that's good. And so I've just step by step kind of pieced something together that fits for me, which may not be as flashy as those that are coming behind me who are young in the age of media and yeah. instantaneous Instagram gratification and and blaring I'm the best and this and whatnot. And, and I'm a little more camera shy and media shy and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Important is that the orchestras that I perform with and the companies I perform with, that they want me back. Right. And that they want to collaborate with me. That's why I do it, not to yeah. get my face on a billboard. Right, right. It's about really for me that that human element of making music together. Yeah, that's when I when I do media consulting for artists. That's one of those things that I try and hit home. Like I had a consultation with somebody right before this, and we were talking about the fact that self promotion, unfortunately, is a necessity now for the younger generation of musicians that yeah. are coming through. And there's no way around it, and it's there's that fine line between self-promotion and narcissism. Mm -hmm. And I always want people to create an emotional connection between their followers and either who they are as an artist or the work they're doing, or both. Mm -hmm. And it's less about them as them 
and more about this is the community of this art form that we're trying to build more than anything else because that's what I mean that's what creating art is all about it's mm. that kind of it's that perspective rather than look at me I'm the shit you know yeah. <laughs> which is so it's so easy to get there <coughs> very quickly and it well I have a, a variation on that sentence I'm not saying I am the shit I am shit <laughs> that's that's like my you know, that's my barometer. It wasn't always. Well, of course, when you're trying to break in, you're like, I am the shit. Right. But um, it took me a long time to break in. Yeah. I mean, it did. People think I lead this charming life, but I, I mean, I was unemployed for quite a while yeah. in music to the point where I said, I'm done. Yeah. You know, and now I run across people who rejected my applications for this and that and the other. And I'm like, huh, do you remember when? <laughs> They're like, oh my God, how could I have possibly? I said, yeah, you know, I threw away all those letters. I regret that I did because I'd love to have them all right now. And just to see and the look on their faces. And, and I'm my agent, who's so brilliant, he says, you know what? The snail can also make it to the goal in the end. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, maybe that's me. I'm just a... Because I, I did so much so early, I skipped a grade in school and whatnot, I think at some point I just said, things need to slow down for me, and there's, there's no, no shame in that. Absolutely, yeah. So you spent, like you said, a, a very large portion of your time in Europe as a Europe, European-based career. Mm -hmm. What are some of the differences between um, working in the European houses versus the American houses? Uh, working how? As a conductor, as an American, as a... As a let, let's go first with the conductor part. Are the, are the roles slightly different? Um, schedules well, different? There's, there's, there's massive amounts of opportunity in Europe. There's yeah. triple the amount of opera houses than we have here in the United States. Right. And there's a, there's a hierarchy for, this is why if you want to break into opera, being a pianist is fortuitous because there are levels of hierarchy in every house. You can start as a coach with no conducting responsibilities, then you can move up to a coach with conducting responsibilities backstage, then you can cover conduct, then you can be an assistant, then you can be a Kapellmeister, and you just build up. And since there are five A, B, C, D, A, B, C, D, yeah, four, <laughs> <laughs> four levels of opera houses in Germany, you know, that's, there's, I don't know how many are active right now, I haven't counted, yeah. um, but 80, yeah. I don't know, and lots of sym symphony orchestras as well. So there's just, um, a massive amount of stuff you can do, not even counting the chamber operas and the and the smaller venues and whatnot, and, and the universities. And, and so I think I probably should have moved over to Europe maybe five years earlier, mm -hmm. but then I would have probably had to have played, and I, I never had to play in an opera house. So, you know, every everything turns out the way it should in the end. Right. Um, but maybe things would have moved a little more quickly for me had I gone earlier and I could have missed that frustration point, but who knows where I would have landed. So, yeah. I mean, looking back on it now, you know, I've been gone from the States nearly 20 years. Um, next summer it'll be 20 years, so I've actually spent more of my adult life in Europe than yeah, right. in the United States. And I'm born to European parents in, in the States, but, um, so I'm American, but am I? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but am I? And, um, yeah, I mean, schedules are different. We generally rehearse in the mornings and the evenings or late afternoon, so there's a big siesta time. Nice. Which I love siesta. Yeah. In some countries, you really need the siesta because it's just too hot. We yeah. don't have air conditioning. That's maybe the biggest. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest there it is, thing. right there. <laughs> the largest difference. <laughs> the, exactly. <coughs> no air conditioning in July. Um, yeah. And um, the system of activity, which is here at the Metropolitan Opera, is the European system, basically, aside from the siesta thing. Like, it's a repertory house, so any of these right. turnovers, okay, it's in the extreme here, like, four operas, you know, the way they turn over on the weekends and stuff is only doable here, because they have such a massive crew. But, like, my opera house in Freiburg, and my, then my opera house in, in Hanover, you know, we played over 26 operas in repertory, and this is a city of 250,000, yeah. orchestra of 106 people, a chorus of, of 57, um, a full, vocal ensemble of 40 singers, full-time employees. Um, and and we, we played all these operas. You know, we played almost seven times a week. I think we were dark maybe three nights in total during the season. Wow. So, I mean, it's just a different range of, of possibilities. Now, as a young singer, you can get sucked into this and, and be asked to do too much and feel like you must do too much in order to stay in the system. Um, 
for me, it was the right choice to make. I don't regret it at all. Mm -hmm. um, here, rehearsal times are shorter, okay. um, more intense. I can't equate with what I'm, the pieces, like I did Susanna in, in San Francisco and I did, um, what did I do? I did Elixir in, in San Diego before they kind of restructured everything. Um, so those were very much stagione pieces. This is also a stagione piece. We're going to do it eight times and then it goes away. It's right. not going <coughs> to come back in April. Right. That kind of thing. Um, that's very much also like an opera house in, in Europe. Um, but otherwise, the biggest difference after the air conditioning is the fact that in Europe everything's state supported. Yeah. yeah. And yeah, that yeah. allows for a kind of ease in creativity that is extremely beneficial. We're not having to chase down donors. Now, given having said that, for certain projects, you do have to get extra support. Like, you will go over budget anymore. Like, if you're doing big video installations, which is very modern right now to have video and, and a film running during an opera or whatever, to keep up with what we're competing with in the rest of the world, mm -hmm. um, uh, you're going to have to find a sponsor for that. And, yeah. and Or special projects, if in your symphonic um, series you want to bring in Jonas Kaufman for a series of two concerts or whatever, you're going to have to get extra sponsorship to bring him in. Right. Those kinds of things are normal, but a ground basis on which to function and that everyone has health insurance and everyone is um, has retirement and everything, that's very, very secure. That's a big difference. Are you seeing a lot of American singers over there? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's never changed. Yeah. Tons. Yeah. And, and instrumentalists. They come over and they study because um, it's cheaper mm -hmm. and the education is just as good, but they don't go broke. Right. Paying for university. We're not looking at student loans that are stacked up exactly, for decades afterwards. Exactly. Yeah. So um, there's something to be said for that. Say the S word, socialism. Right. Oh, oh God. Oh. oh, God. I know. <laughs> so, I mean, people can relax a little bit and get down to the get down to the work. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that it, it allows for kind of a, a, a broader creativity amongst the you works. You can make mistakes. And you're not the first person I've heard put it that way mm. when it comes to working, particularly in, in Germany. Mm. Um, that there's a little bit more room, like you said, make mistakes, try something new, try something try different. Try something new and, I mean, not be 100% reliable, reliant on ticket sales mm -hmm. to say, we're going to do a real experiment here. Maybe no one will come. Right. But we need to do this because as artists we need to expand and that kind of I think the Regie Theater has its place, for sure. I'm probably going to get hit by a bolt of lightning from somewhere now. But I love Regie Theater for certain things. I love turning pieces on their head. Yeah. You know, I, I don't want us to become a museum piece. Yeah. Um, I don't think pieces need to be set in the time they were written, because if you read the letters of, of any of the composers, they were modern people at that time. Right. And the, the stories and humanity, God help us, has not changed one lick right. since we were created. Yeah. Um, we haven't changed at all. So the stories are very um, able to uh, la last through the tests of time. Yeah. And so why shouldn't we make it applicable to our lives right now? Mm -hmm. You know, someone gets upset because there's a cell phone in a Verdi opera. What, do you want to, I don't want to see it really all the time the way it was done then. I love, I love directors who kind of nod their hat to the past but really keep it in the present so mm -hmm. you can do that with with mannerisms you can do it with a little bit of costuming but you know these female stories that you know of women getting abused and raped and beaten and and sold for slavery or whatever is still actual today yeah men don't duel as much but they'll go you know beat each other up behind the bar shooting is very popular right now yeah you know so yeah. where are we so to to hold opera to higher standards or or more difficult standards than we hold the cinema <laughs> right um, is for me a kind of uh, hypocrisy I don't think that I, I can't imagine that Verdi or Mozart wanted to put their operas in a time capsule mm. and it'd be like this way all the time mm. Wagner maybe <laughs> a, a little bit yeah, yeah a little bit I would agree but I mean uh, you know, talking about talking about Mozart, the abduction from the Seraglio. You know, people want to see it the way they want to see it the way it was done then, because if you put it in the whorehouses of now, 
or what's going on in the sex slave trade now, nobody wants to see that on stage. Right. But they will see it on TV and they will see it in the movies. But right. there's this hypocrisy or, or double standard that when you come to the opera, it should all be beautiful. Right. And the actual stories in opera are not so beautiful. The music, no. the music, even, I mean, you know, in the Verdi operas, the most beautiful melody has actually some of the most shattering texts. Yeah. You know, and still there's this misconception that classical music should only make people feel happy and be beautiful. But yeah. what defines beauty? Right. You know, I mean, one of my most favorite misogynistic moments in all of opera is Scarpia's scene. Yes. You know, I mean, yes. I'm like, I'm brought to my knees by that. But if I think about it, holy cow, yeah. Yeah. Va Tosca. Yeah. That is a <laughs> heavy scene. Yeah. I mean, so heavy. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny because here's again where you, you're, you're a slave to the drama a little bit. If I see a, a Scarpia that's not really believable, mm -hmm. that scene loses its momentum, it loses its gravitas. Mm -hmm. But when you get a Scarpia that's really in that zone mm -hmm. and in that character through and through, mm -hmm. it, it's it's not easy to watch sometimes. No, and it should not be. Exactly. I think also when she says, quel prezzo, what price? I mean, that's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of history in those two words. Yeah, yeah. Or, in, even in Butterfly, which I am not a fan of, um, when she sends her kid out and says, equesto, what am I gonna do with this? With this. Right here. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay. You know, so has the world changed? No. So speaking of your adoration for working with living mm. composers, I mean, it's, it's funny because I always tell, I tell singers all the time, I'm like, there's nothing, there is no experience like working with a living composer and feeling the life and the evolution of a piece mm. from creation through. It's, a, it's exciting to be a part of that. Mm. And then, <coughs> excuse me, even that first performance, even a premiere, it's not like you do the premiere and you're like, well, there it is. For the rest of time, it's right there. Mm. There it is. It still grows past that. Um, talk to me a little bit about your relationship and history with Philip Glass and how the, kind of how that came about and what you guys have done together. Because it's been, Ooh. I mean, it's a, it's a <laughs> phenomenal strength to you as an artist and what you've been able to do in your career to have that opportunity yeah. as well as to collaborate with with him on that. And well, I discovered really his music, music right at the end of the 80s while I was at IU still. Um, I'm sure I took a contemporary music class or something and we had to listen to stuff of his. I'm sure <laughs> that was on the I remember those days, required, yeah. <laughs> required reading. And um, I was in the listening library being a nerd on the weekend probably and, and plowing through stuff. And I think a friend of mine took me to see Koyana Skatsi and Pawakatsi. And I fell in love with, especially Pawakatsi, because it had a lot of folk music in it, which I adore. And then in 1990 or 91 at the latest, um, Passages came out, which was this collaboration between Ravi Shankar and Philip Glass. Mm -hmm. um, and again, folk music elements, cross cultures, which I just love. Um, and I was, I was in. And then another series of serendipitous events led me via Janos Starker, the cello teacher, to Dennis Russell Davies, who was at the time in Bonn in Germany, and um, he was here with the American Composers Orchestra. And he and Philip are very, very close friends. Mm. So I was assisting Dennis, and um, through him I met Philip. We started working together on his opera Orphée, which is one of the Cocteau trilogy. And so I conducted, I think, two performances here at BAM, like in the early 90s. First we'd done it, I can't remember, I'd have to look in my own timeline <laughs> um, to see how things happened. But I did that, and then we, we recorded that. We recorded the Low Symphony. I played keyboards when needed. I was on an off-Broadway thing with Philip. I was, they, they kind of raised me. Yeah. You know, and helped me pay my rent by hiring me every <laughs> once in a while. And then um, I went on tour with him when we did Les Enfants Terribles, which was, I think, the second of the trilogy, um, the Cocteau trilogy. And so we were on tour for nine months together with a small ensemble and dancers and singers and whatnot. And so I got to know him very well. 
and I just kept doing things and then you know pivots and turns and whatnot we lost touch with each other and then uh, came back over the years I did civil wars in Freiburg at one point and then things just started happening and then the ENO finally asked me just in 2016 somehow I got this uh, you know nom de guerre um, I'm, I'm a Philip Glass expert so <laughs> luckily I love his music so I don't mind it so much um, and he seems to be pleased with my work and and can't be better than that yeah and so he's he's been there since basically my life since I was 18 so that's fantastic yeah it's really very 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 special and it's a it had to have been very stretching because his his the scope of his work is so broad for mediums and performance opportunities and yeah it's it's not he's not a very he's not a stereotypical composer or one no. that stays in one genre of medium like I no mean, but it's, it's funny I, I got this label after doing like two things so I don't know I don't <laughs> know how labels work I mean <laughs> I did civil wars I did this stuff in the in the 90s with him and then I did the light and then I didn't even do the violin concerto yet but I'm then I did pass okay the ENO called I did Akhenaten the first time then I did Satyagraha with them and then passages came at the proms and we just did it in Paris and then this came and now something's coming again in, in April with the London Phil and uh, yeah. What are some of the challenges of, of learning his work? I mean it's a very specific style uh, but let's let's go with Akhenaten because we're okay. you know this will release Focusing right beforehand and yeah. that's wh why we're both sitting in yeah. this this house at the same <laughs> time. Um, what are some of the challenges of, of learning the minimalist style and something that's so repetitive Mm -hmm. um, does that make it more difficult for you to fully wrap your head around the piece and then help facilitate the singers and that kind of thing? What, um, what's your process for, for that? So, one of, I don't have many superpowers, but one of my superpowers is, is rhythm. And part of this is probably because the Philip Glass Ensemble and Philip kind of raised me. Mm -hmm. And you see how they put things together and how they, how they deal with rhythm and how they deal with strenuous music and how, how high they get from doing it because they created this ensemble and they've been doing it for 40 years so yeah. it's like you learn at the source um, so I learned a lot from them about how to ease into these things now people had to give Philip a label so they called him minimal right um, I prefer to call to, to call his style additive because the macrocosm that yeah. you get from it is very much the sum of all parts right you know, and um, Mozart had a lot of minimal, in quotes, um, music as well. I mean, ask the second violins, yeah? Right. <laughs> <laughs> and the basses, you know? Yeah. And so um, everyone has, like Verdi, I mean, his ostinati, you yeah. know? That's minimal as well, if you want to give it a label. Um, so additive in terms of, of um, He's very much influenced by Indian music, which is also an additive music. They add very much half so. a beat, they add one yeah. beat, they add a beat and a half or whatever. And nothing changes. Like, we're very much into syncopations and whatnot. So if you see a dot on a note, there has to be a little hiccup before it or after it yeah. to prove that there's a dot on the note. Or a rest on beat one means that you have to take a little time. Right. No, it's just a gap in time, actually. So that's the difference between Eastern and Western music a little bit. And, and I try to encourage the instrumentalists and the vocalists to try to get rid of the bar lines in their thinking mm. so that we're not driving a s stick shift car basically and shifting gears too much. The gears are shifted in that someone is playing with a minus sign, means their rhythmic pattern is getting smaller, and others are enlarging theirs. So you'll hear lots of cross rhythms and cross patterns and for me this kind of music doesn't really work if you're constantly banging on the downbeat. Yeah. You know, you just have to kind of let it happen. So that, for me, takes a lot of control. It took me a long time to figure out actually how I enjoy conducting it based on who else I've seen working on his music. And yeah. um, I listen to a lot of Indian music. I work with Anushka Shankar on passages and learned an immense amount from her and her, her um, team. She travels, you know, often with quite a few musicians and um, with her on tabla, on, on, on sarod, on, on flutes and different, different types of things and how they interact with each other and how they deal with rhythm. And so in very complicated things, I've had to say to people, well, this is just one shifted over 
and you still have one, two, three, rest, one, two, three, rest, one, two, three, rest, and we're in a three, four, so you're thinking that, oh, you have to always like take a little extra time to prove that there's a rest there, but you're just in a four, four bar pattern over like 12 of my measures just shifted one over, and then they go, oh, yeah. Yeah. But we're so downbeat oriented. Yes, yes, we that are. We're not, Western classical musicians don't think mathematically. Mm -hmm. And Eastern musicians must think mathematically because it's based on a totally different number system. But even like if you look at the music of Bulgaria, which is such mixed meters, you know, it's it's just it's like mother's milk for them. It's it's no sweat off their back. And okay, we play a lot of Stravinsky, a lot of John Adams, things that that really have a lot of mixed patterns. But even there, sometimes we cheat. Mm. We cheat. We mm -hmm. kind of take a little time away because we're nervous about a seven. You know? right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Yeah. yeah. So that yeah. that old theory, that um, that we feel happy in four four. Yeah. I, I when I I did a little extensive studying in international music, mm. that specifically non-Western music, mm -hmm. um, and I remember looking at Indian drumming patterns. Yes. And trying to first off trying to count those. And Have you seen their notation? Yeah, <laughs> it is wild, but it's so far removed from the way that we learn music yeah. that I had to ignore everything that I had been trained as a musician Absolutely. in order to even come close to understanding what was going on. Yeah. And then, and that distinct, like you said, adding, uh, adding beats or mm. partial beats mm -hmm. as you go mm -hmm. and it being, I, I love the way you put additive mm. instead of minimalist because the, it's that slow build. Well, minimalist, I find it to be derogatory. It's like yeah. it's saying that it's something less. Right. But it's not. <laughs> right. Especially, especially, I mean, because I've seen a little bit of um, like pieces of the score from my friends that are singing in Akhenaten yes. and seeing the way that that works and, you know, repeat repetition of a syllable so many times. Yeah. But I, I think it was Janae that put it. It's that, it's that slow stretch to the climax. Yeah that keeps you riveted the whole time. You yeah. know, it's it's not a burst of emotion that suddenly takes you there. It's that process of getting exactly. there. Exactly. And, um, you know, life is cyclical, and this music is very cyclical. Mm -hmm. And that comforts people in a certain way who listen to it and annoys people in a certain way. Yeah. Like some people can't go to that place. That's fine. I keep repeating. There's room for us all. Right. You know, there's a, a big groupy gang that traveled to hear Philip Glass from all over the world. So he's not hurting for audience. Right. Um, and, and some people just can't take it. And we have to respect that. And in terms of, of any of the instrumentalists who may not like his music, I mean, we are professionals. It's exhausting to play. And I try to make it as, as least exhausting as I can mm -hmm. by the way I ask them to play. And um, there are a lot of tricks of the trade that we use for various pieces. We know how Verdi's supposed to be. We know how Wagner's supposed to be. We know how Mozart's supposed to be. How is Philip Glass supposed to be? There are a lot of theories. My theory is that it should be as natural as possible. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, not a lot of extra accents where they aren't needed because that just muddies the waters mm -hmm. a little bit. It's like throwing the rock into the pool in yeah. the middle of somebody else's wave. You know, that, that just doesn't kind of work. So I encourage the wind players to, to really pace their breathing, alternate as much as they need. They do alternations and the strings to take breaks when they need to, just make sure one person in the group is playing. Still playing. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, encourage them to have the, the weight of the down bow and the up bow be the same. So if they need to lighten their down bow, that's fine. Mm -hmm. um, that up bow should never be with a kick and that you shouldn't jump the octave by punching the top note. Things yeah. like that are, are really to delineate a triplet with the equal amount of weight going across the octave. And um, it, it makes them think in a different way, but once they finally freed themselves of the normal Western music kind of box that we're put into, mm -hmm. it, it gets easier. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking from a singer's perspective about the breathing, the same way, staggered breathing throughout, just um, or very specific places? Very specific places, yeah. yeah for this. I mean, we do have some sort of text for this. Yeah, right, right, um, And no, the chorus is not doing any staggered breathing. That Maybe in the in the last chorale backstage, but the mm -hmm. chorale in the second act. Um, but other than that, no, we take we take breaths. Yeah. Satyagraha is a little bit different. That's much more 
user unfriendly in terms of <laughs> how many how many notes they have to sing. Yeah. And the ha 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 chorus. Right. Which is relentless, and there yeah. they stagger their breathing. Breathing. I just think from without getting to to do that consistently without building a tension that's well, a, a detrimental I, tension. I have to be. There's a there's a there's a wonderful wor word in German called Ruhepol, which is like the North Pole, but it's the Peace Pole, like okay. the peaceful place to be the one peaceful element in the entire apparatus is me. I'm like essentially calm in this. No mm -hmm. matter what's going on, I, I barely have an ictus in my beat, only when I really need it. And that's hard yeah. to get adjusted to, to not have this constant punching going on in the peripheral vision. And they, I streamline my beats so that time flows. Mm -hmm. I don't hack into it except when I need to. I've developed a karate chop which also has made for some shoulder issues, but <laughs> but it's kind of like a drawbridge coming down in anticipation of the next downbeat, which just for me has over the years allowed whichever ensemble I'm with to focus the sound and mm -hmm. just kind of relax going to the downbeat, not lurching into the next downbeat so that we all make it on time. Yeah. And um, at the cost of my shoulder, it's been a lot of a lot of really good. Uh, some rotator musical. cuff issues yeah, there. <laughs> a little bit. Ice pack is your friend. Yes. So um, you, you learn by what you, I think most important for a conductor is to have a vision of the sound and where you want to go. And if you're too, if you're dealing too much in what's happening at the moment, trying to fix everybody's problems, I mean, it's a big pot of people mm -hmm. trying to cook this soup at the end of the night, you know? And um, I think you have to stay a couple of seconds in advance of everyone to tend to their needs yeah. so that they can relax. Yeah. I'm really intrigued. I'm, I, I can't wait to watch you conduct it. Mm. I feel Hopefully like. Hopefully, you won't notice me. True. Although my, my eyes are going to go there because I'm I'm really interested about your your patterns for for conducting this kind of material. Well, I stay in the regular old stuff. Well, that's what I was going to say. You know how much of it <laughs> well, is. Well, that's not is entirely true. I do compound. I do compound beats. So, mm -hmm. you know, bigger measures. I'll just make sure the phrases can go into a four-four mm -hmm. pattern. So that I don't, they don't have too many movements coming from me. It, it requires a lot of responsibility on everybody's part, but there's yeah. freedom in that. They they know I'm constant. Yeah. Um, and the the best compliment I ever 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 got was from a dear friend in London who came to Akhenaten the last time we did it, and he said, "Girl, that is the most egoless conducting I have ever seen." <laughs> And he said, and it was so brilliant that it brought te tears to my eyes. And I, I just said, okay, my, my work is done here. <laughs> There's, there are some conductors, especially in symphonic stuff that I've seen, that they're all I can pay attention to. Yeah. It's, it's one thing to be a presence and another thing to almost feel like it's about I them. I think it and was I Carl like Boom. I don't know. I'm not a historian, so I'm sure someone's going to find out that I'm wrong. But I think it was Carl Boom that said that anyone who who broke a sweat while conducting was an amateur. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> Amateurs. Amateurs. I'm sure there's a historical quote there. Or maybe it's just urban legend. We talked a little bit about uh, one of the reasons I like to interview conductors and other people <coughs> that aren't singers um, is because I think singers can learn a lot. Um, the question was, was um, about the dynamic of working with singers. Yes. The singer-conductor relationship. Mm -hmm. Do you have advice for singers on working with conductors or things that you particularly look for um, in the singer-conductor relationship? Let's go to the Boy Scouts. What is okay. the Boy Scouts motto? Be prepared. Yes. <laughs> that can, can be the building block of a good relationship. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, yes. And... Uh, be prepared means also, I think, be curious about the history surrounding whatever role, whatever piece you're singing. Take the time to read about it and try to live that experience and be, be open to new things. And, and look, you know, if you have 100 people in the room, you're going to have 110 opinions about anything. So this is just mine. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there are great musicians out there. There are not so great musicians out there. There are people who can cover a lot of ground. There are people who have a very, very specific ground that they cover. So you're going to meet all kinds out there. Be prepared. 
<laughs> for all of it and be prepared. Know your notes, know the traditions, be as honest an ambassador as you can be for the composer. Be honest. You know, there are many traditions that just aren't good. Yeah. That have come across the years and people think you expect it, but those conductors that may be cl cleaning up the repertoire get a get a bum rap sometimes because they're yeah. doing things that are non-traditional. I mean, we had the whole influx of the Baroque movement, which is brilliant, the kind of music making that's going on in that field, you know. How do we know that that's a tradition? Uh, you know, read about it and, and go back to the sources, source materials, and see that. And, and trust that all traditions aren't good. So if a conductor asks you to do something, there must be a reason for it. Mm -hmm. I think after a certain level in the music world, you can rest assured that you're working with a good conductor. Yeah? I mean, again, Learning to conduct is also a, a long road for any human being that is trying to go down that path because it involves leadership. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard thing to learn, especially in this day and age where society is very fast and wants instant gratification for everything. So as a leader, you have to be on your toes all the time. And music needs time. So each conductor is also just an artist in progress. And lots of, lots of people aren't comfortable with the physical aspect of conducting but have lots to say and lots to offer in terms of music. Maybe they can't turn it over as well as other colleagues. You know, it takes a village to put on an opera. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And, um, you know, some conductors are bad. Some are really, really good. Some are good technicians. Some, some can't land the plane in the evening. Some are better in rehearsal than they are in performance. Some are better in performance than they are in rehearsal. I mean, we're just a human being. But I could have the same advice for the conductors. Be prepared, Be prepared. Yeah. you know, and, and from there, you're just human beings trying to get this amazing thing done. And um, it's, it's very German to kind of not give compliments, but as long as you're not saying anything, like there's still a basis to work. Mm -hmm. So don't think that you're not doing a good job if someone's not praising you all the time. If yeah. you're not getting fired, you're still yes. you're yes. still on the team. Yeah. Yeah. And if you're not in the penalty box, if someone doesn't put you in the penalty box, don't look to go there. Right. Don't don't let your ego get the best of you or your or your lack of ego get the best of you. If if you need compliments, call your mom. <laughs> yes. And um I mean that's harsh, but but you know, but in the we, professional we world. Can't, we, yeah, I mean, in, in offices, in the law offices, in, oh, my God, in, in the medical profession, they're, all, they're not saying, oh, my God, good you job. were so good today. <laughs> you know, save the life, save the opera, save the piece of music yeah. you're working on. We are here to serve the music mm. and not ourselves. Mm -hmm. We are here to serve the music, and hopefully the public will feel happy about that fact. But w we are, by extension, here to serve the public. But it's actually the producer that's here to serve the public. We, on stage, are there to serve the music. Right. And the music is an entity which cannot be quantified mm -hmm. or held in a cage or put on, be put on a leash. And so be prepared. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you. I, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time after. No, I, I mean, in, the, in this schedule, it's just always too. mayhem. Glad so. to help. For more information about today's guest, visit our website at operabizpodcast.com slash guests. And don't forget to subscribe to our channel wherever podcasts are heard for two new episodes every month. Follow us on social media as well. Instagram, at operabiz, and Twitter, at operabizpodcast. Thanks for listening.